You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. Well, thanks for being here this morning to worship with us. Uh, a couple of brief announcements here before we get started. Uh, Dale wanted me to remind you that next week for the, for the young guys, we're going to have Sunday school. Uh, or a modified Sunday school about 9.20. If you get here around 9 o'clock with your kids, uh, that gives us an even larger window just to preach life into them and just to, to build them up and to take advantage of the time that we have. I know Dale spoke about that, and that's also an opportunity for the men uh, to continue their prayer time together. I just want to encourage the ladies to, to pick that up and to do the same. Uh, I mean, the bottom line is we can't pray enough, right? The bottom line is we can't open the Word enough, and so... Uh, any chance we have, especially to speak the words of life into our children, I think that's a good thing. So I want to encourage you to have your kids here next Sunday morning about 9.20. And I will tell you now, this I know this is a shock to a lot of people, but I tend to be a straight shooter. And I sat there and I told the deacons when we met last time, you know, they were like, man, can 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 people get here that early? And I said, listen, they got their kids at school by 7.45. We can get here by 9 o'clock, so I'll put it on you the same way. If we can get to school by 7.45, then we can have, surely we can have our kids here at 9.20 to speak life into them, okay? And then that evening, we're going to start our Sunday evening service. I just want to encourage you to be here for that. If uh, if you can work that into your schedule, we'll be looking at the book of Job. And that's been a deep wait for the last couple of weeks, uh, so I think it's going to be good if, if you're here uh, to hear that. But this morning... We're going to continue through Psalm 119, rather large book. We're going to try to condense it down here, but we're going to look at uh, this, the idea of revival. Renewal and revival is where we're going to be this week. And last week, Jed did a good job with a very difficult task. I hope to do the same thing today as we look at revival. But Jed, I wanted to, I wanted to touch on just one thing that, that Jed talked about last week. He laid the foundation last week of, of speaking about removing and replacing and David pleaded with God to put false ways away from him and to replace them with God's law. We've got to be real careful about, about pleading with God to put false things away from us and stopping there. And not pleading with him to replace them with God's law. That's an important concept that we've got to grasp, especially before we can talk about revival. And I want you to understand this simple principle. A hole always gets filled. A hole always gets filled. We don't live in a vacuum. I think of school, a couple of examples just with school, because I work in a school, but I know several years back there was a big uproar about taking the Ten Commandments out of the school. Uh, you know, way back in the day, some of you probably remember firsthand, you know, they took prayer out of the school. And the, and the lie of the culture is that we want to walk this fine line to where we're neutral. And you'll even hear people, shockingly and sadly, that aren't necessarily against the Ten Commandments, they're not against prayer, but we've got to remain neutral. Well, the fact is, there is no neutral. When you take something out, something takes its place. And so we've got to be real careful about misunderstanding that concept. Paul talks about this in Romans 1. He talks about unbelievers, and he teaches that they know that there's a God. In their hearts they know, and they still reject Him. And just as all know that there's a God, they also know that there's evil and falsehood. You don't have to look around very far to see that people know that there is such a thing as evil. And the only person that has the power and the authority 
to remove this evil and falsehood from within us is Jesus Christ. Right? That's what David's saying in the book of Psalms. Because what he say? He says, take false things away from me, but replace them with God's law. Matthew 5.17, it says, this was Jesus when he said, do, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. David says, replace these evil things with God's law. And what he's saying without knowing he's saying it is replace them with Christ. So here's the point. If we don't replace the evil in our hearts with Christ, then another form of evil is simply going to take its place. Because that's what we are. Right? And just, again, look at the culture at large. People, you know people that are constantly trying to rid themselves of sin, but they're like a hamster on a wheel because they're looking for solutions in the wrong places. So they replace one sin with another. Instead of recognizing that Christ is the solution, not a solution, he is the solution. And David's right here. And before we can even begin to talk about revival, which is we're going to do today, we've got to understand that concept. The hole always gets filled. And what are we trying to fill it with? Are we trying to fill it with the law of God? Or are we trying to fill it with our own thing? So that was free. That was extra. Let's get cranked up on this week. But I want you to ponder the following couple of questions. I've got an outline behind me. That's just my personality. I know you can't see it, especially here in the back. It's for you to take a picture and go home and study later. You can fill in the blanks. Right? We don't have a copy machine here. I would give you all copies. I didn't have this finished by Friday, so I couldn't make copies of school. You can forgive me on that. But two questions that I want us to think about today is how many of us in this room right now would claim to want revival in our church and community? How many of us would claim to want revival in our church and community? If I asked that question and held your feet to the fire, I think most of you would raise your hand that you would want to see those things. But then if I asked, well, how many of us have claimed to witness and experience it to the extent that we desire, I don't think we'd see so many hands go up. So if the, question, if the answer to the first question is yes, but the answer to the second question is no, then we have to ask the third question, which is why? If I want to see revival, but I haven't seen it, why? Before we can go any further, we're going to tackle that question today, but before we can go any further, we've got to make sure that we're all on the same page. What is revival? How do you define revival? And we've got to be very careful here because it's easy for us in our American mindset to get off track. True Christian revival, it doesn't involve or revolve around my increased prosperity, my increased status. It doesn't revolve around wealth, my increased wealth. It doesn't revolve around the government. The government's not involved in true Christian revival. But as an American, we have a tendency to focus on those things. And don't get me wrong, I pray for my country, I want my country to be a holy place, but I don't look to my country for revival because that's not where it comes from. Revival, especially on a personal or a community level, it doesn't require a righteous government, it doesn't require a healthy income or a healthy investment portfolio. Because here's the reality, one can be, just like many in the world are, they can be in the midst of a powerful revival while under the thumb of an evil government and while living in the worst poverty imaginable. Poverty that you can't even wrap your head around. How can that be? Because the definition of true spirit revival is spiritual in nature. 
It's a spiritual reawakening. Okay, I want you to remember that word. Reawakening. From a state of stagnation in the life of a believer. So the believer's life has gone stale and the flame is relit. That's what revival is. It's the resurfacing of a love for God, a passion for His Word, the conviction of sin, and a desire for repentance and growth. That's what revival is. So remember, if we're looking to remove this stagnation, my spiritual life has gone stagnant, and if I'm looking to fill it with a false sense of revival, economic gain, a better government, or any other perceived form of self-improvement or cultural improvement, then I'm never going to find true Christian revival. I can go back to those two questions. Why am I not seeing it? Because I'm looking for the wrong thing. David knew that the source of revival was God and His Word. That's what we're going to see in Psalm 119. Specifically in, in this chapter, David speaks of revival nine times by crying out, Give me life. He's desperate. And I think in Psalm 119.25, he lays out the keys to revival. And if we truly desire to see genuine Christian revival, not this, not this false definition, but true Christian revival, both personally and in our community, then we've got to hear and obey what the Word of God tells us. So this morning we're going to do something a little different. I may do this more often. I might have Brody come up. This was his idea. We need to get our kids up here reading the Word of God. And so he's going to read Psalm 119.25. That's what we're going to focus our time on this morning. Psalm 119.25. My life is down in the dust. Give me life through your word. Thank you. I know a lot of you guys would like to jump and not feel pain when you like that. I'm, 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 my right knee is slowly getting there. Not both of them, but my right knee. So Psalm 119.25, David says, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. We see in this one, this one short verse, we're going to see three key aspects of revival. And the first is, David, David shows a deep despair. And if I want to see revival, then I've got to get to a point of deep despair. He says, my soul clings to the dust. He's crying out in despair to God. And his despair is caused by the fact that his soul clings to the dust. That's an interesting phrase. Right? You're not going to walk across anybody at your place of employment or walking down the street this week that's going to say, man, my soul just... How are you today? My soul's just clinging to the dust. Nobody's going to say that. But we shouldn't quickly dismiss what David's trying to say. This is poetry. I told Dale earlier this week, this is not my sweet spot. This week really stretched me. I know it's a shock to most of you that I'm not a poetry guy. But it really stretched me. But David's... This is poetry. And what he's doing is he's painting us a picture. He's describing his current position in great detail. And this reference of, his, of the dust, of my soul clinging to the dust, it invokes an emotion of shame. And it's a reference to David's sin and his sin nature. And the dust of the ground is the lowest point that one can arrive at. It's the lowest point that you can ever reach. You can't go any lower. And if we're familiar with the word... 
then this phrase, the dust of the ground, should draw us back to the initial fall of man in the Garden of Eden. Satan tempts Adam and Eve, and they fall into sin. And as a result, Satan's cursed by God in Genesis 3.14. Just a slight plug for Sunday nights, too. We're going to spend some time. If you really want to get to know who Satan is, I'm still wading through that. It's been good. Me and Dale have gone back and forth. I still don't know where I'm going. But we're going to talk about who Satan is and why it's important for us to know that as we walk through the book of Job. But in Genesis 3.14, God curses Satan because of the way that he tempted Adam and Eve. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Scripture tells us that Satan was an angel, but not just any ordinary angel. In the book of Ezekiel, he's described as the anointed cherub. And it seems to paint this picture that he was at the top of the angel hierarchy. He was a chief. And if that's the case, then Satan fell from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, the dust of the ground. It's the same picture that David's trying to present. He's at the lowest of lows. He tells us that his soul is in this place. It's drawn to the dust of the ground. In other words, David's soul, his innermost being, who he is at his core... It's drawn to the things of the world, to sin. That's why David's in deep despair. Because he recognizes that he's drawn to sin. And he knows that that's the way of death. If you read the book of Proverbs, David, me and the kids have been working through that this month, so you can do it. This is January 30th, we're going to finish today. But if you read... 31st, isn't it? My bad. If you read... The book of Proverbs, David hammers that point home, right, to his son, because that's what his son writes. He's hammered that point home that that sin leads to death. Avoid sin at all costs. And David's in despair because he knows that his soul is drawn to this very sin. We see the same thing confirmed in the New Testament in the book of Romans. Romans 6.23, it says the wages of sin, the cost of sin is death. So at this point, we've got to stop and we've got to recognize the difference between the carnal man and the man who's been touched by God. Because there's a distinct difference. The carnal man gladly clings to the dust. He doesn't recognize that it's the lowliest place. He doesn't recognize it for the evil that it is. He just goes about his day. He's a pig in the mire. He doesn't just fall into the dust. He relishes the dust. It's where he wants to be. The carnal man isn't revived. You can't revive a dead man. There's no revival for the carnal man because he's dead. He's never been alive. He's got to initially be given life. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. But the man who, in contrast, the man who's been touched by God, he still has a fallen flesh as long as he's on this earth. He's naturally drawn to the dust, but here's the difference. He despises it. He doesn't delight in it. It's not where he wants to be. He recognizes that he's drawn to it, but it's not who he wants to be. This man, just as David, is in deep despair because he desperately wants to break away from this fallen and wicked state. He doesn't want to be drawn to those things. That's what David said. We talked about last week in verse 29. He said, put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I don't want to be this man. 
This thought came to me this week, and maybe just something to think about as you interact with people. But this seems to indicate that righteous men, if I encounter a righteous man, he knows that he's wicked. But if I encounter an evil man, he thinks he's good. Righteous men know they're wicked, while evil men think they're good. And there's other biblical examples of this. In Isaiah, verse 6 and 5, Isaiah falls before the throne of God and says, I'm a man of unclean lips. He knew exactly what he was. Peter, before Jesus, in Luke 5, 8, falls on the ground and says, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. In Romans 7, Paul says, I don't want to be that guy. But I don't do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. I know that nothing good dwells in me. He knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly what he's drawn to. And he's in despair because that's not who he wants to be. That's not who God has called him out to be. So you have to recognize David's cry. His cry to God is a cry of conflict and humiliation. Again, that's separate from the carnal man. Think about this. The gravity of sin was not meant to be dealt with outside of God. The gravity of sin was not meant to be dealt with outside of God. And to understand that concept, you don't have to look any further than these recent quarantines and shutdowns that we've been experiencing. I just talked about this with one of my classes this week. But what happens in the middle of a shutdown, what happens in the middle of a quarantine, is a man has to deal with himself. We spent all this time, we're really good at distraction. And now all of a sudden, when I'm locked in this space and can't go anywhere, I've got to deal with me. And what's happened? Depression's gone through the roof. Drug abuse has gone through the roof. Suicide's gone through the roof. Why? Because there's no hope. The prospect of sin without a Savior is nothing but damnation. That's what it is. The prospect of sin without a Savior is damnation. And so while David cries out to God, it's a cry of conflict and humiliation. He hasn't given up. He's done the opposite. He cries out to God because he recognizes who God is. And he recognizes who he is. And instead of losing hope, he understands that God is his hope. So if we want to experience true revival, we have to first start in a place of deep despair because we know who we are. But we also know that revival can't happen without hope and recognize that God is who that hope is. And that's where David takes us next. The second thing is we have to have this heavenly hope. If we look at that short verse, 25, David next says, Give me life. Give me life. I don't plead for something from someone if there's no hope. And David says, give me life. And this cry of give me life or revive me, depending on what translation you're looking at, it, it's a cry full of expectation. And that's what the whole chapter 119 is. It's a cry of expectation. David believes what God has said. Despite his condition, he trusts in the promises of a faithful God. The first thing he does is, he's, is there's all these mentions of God's promises. In Psalm 119, David uses the Hebrew word imrah, I-M-R-A-H, if you're taking notes. He uses that 16 times. 
And it's translated as utterance, speech, or word. And it's interesting that, forgive me, Brother Mark, but it's interesting in the ESV that that word's translated 13 times as promise. So the implication is, David recognizes what God has said, both directly to him and indirectly to his people over history. And that's where he places his hope. David's crying out to God and declaring, I know what I am, but I also know who you are and what you've said. I know what you've promised to provide on my behalf, and I have the expectation that it will happen just as you said it will. Revive me. David also, he repeatedly refers back to the actual promises of God. But specifically to us, we have to answer the question, well, what do these promises do? What, what do they provide? What is it that David finds the hope of revival in? It's, it's very interesting to me that the first, the first mention, Psalm 119.38. Let's read that. Psalm 119.38. David says, confirm what you said to your servant, for it produces reverence for you. Notice that the very first thing that David says, this is why I want you to revive me. Because it confirms to all these other people that you are who you say you are. The first place David went was not, because I want mine. It's not why. Because I want want to be blessed. Now he says, I want you To do what you said you would do. Because it's going to bring glory to your name. When the promises of God are fulfilled and they're on display, the world is put on notice and they're faced with a choice. Joshua 5.1, back in the Old Testament, is just one simple example. But as, as the people of Israel are brought into the promised land, other people, other nations, they're forced to take notice. It says, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites were be, who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. God revealed who he was and the world took notice. And David says, I know you're a faithful God. I know what you've promised to me, and I want you to fulfill these promises. I have hope that you'll fulfill these promises, because first and foremost, it brings glory to your name. So while David desires personal revival, he's not in it just for himself. He understands that personal revival provides the opportunity for revival on a larger larger scale, and that's what his heart's after. So when we sit here and we think, I want to see revival... What's the motive? Why do we want to see it? Do I want to see it just for me? Or do I recognize that revival in this place is the opportunity for revival on a larger scale? In verses 41 and 76, he talks about the promises of God as the fulfillment of God's steadfast love and salvation. In verses 50 and 154, he says the promises of God brings true life. In verse 58, they bring favor and grace. 
in verses 116 and 133, protection and comfort. In verse 140, it says the promises of God are proven. And then lastly, in verses 82, 123, and 148, he says these promises are worth waiting and dwelling on. They're worth waiting for and dwelling on. So what do these promises of God bring? They bring the glory of God. They bring His steadfast love, His salvation, true and abundant life, God's favor and grace, and His protection and comfort. That's what David fully expects to see. But where does David's understanding and expectation of these promises come from? How does he know this? Because if he can know it, then surely I can know it. David's in a unique position because he has a knowledge of these promises both directly and indirectly. Indirectly, he knows Scripture. And through his reading of Scripture, he's developed an understanding of who God is and what he's promised and what he's done for his people. There's some thought that David had more Scripture than just the first five books of the law. But if we just stopped at only those five books, David's got plenty to draw from. He's seen God work in creation. He's read of him moving in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's read about the protection and blessing of Joseph, even through extremely difficult times. He knows by heart, probably, the trials of Israel and God's steadfast love and protection through their exodus from Egypt. And just as we mentioned a moment ago, David knows of God's fulfilled promise of leading Israel into the promised land. One of my personal favorite passages of Scripture is Exodus 6. In the beginning of that chapter, God speaks with Moses and he puts on full display who he is, what he's done, and what he will do. It's the faithfulness and love of God demonstrated in the past that assures us that God will be faithful in the future. That's where David's hope comes from. He knows the word and he trusts it. And additionally, David's got direct communication with God. He's communed with God during his life. In 2 Samuel 7, we read of God's covenant with David, where God details all the ways that he's protected and blessed David, along with the promise that his line will never be removed. And it will be established forever through the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Here's the key. David knows God. And a knowledge of God and an intercession with Him, along with complete trust and reliance, can't help but bring revival. Listen to Psalm 119.82. If you highlight anything in your Bible, you, this, you probably should highlight this. David says, My eyes long for your promise. I ask, When will you comfort me? There's one key word in this cry of David that we would do well to recognize. And that word is when. What happens if you take that one word out? It changes everything. David moves from expectation to doubt and makes a mockery of God. But he doesn't. There's full expectation. When will you comfort me? Not are you going to, but when Our desire for revival should hinge on that same word, when. God is a faithful God. He's fully capable of bringing revival, and he's promised to do so. David knows this. But what does it mean 
to know this? How can we know this? And that all hinges on the third key to revival, which is a longing for and a life lived in God's word. David finishes up verse 25 with the phrase, through your word, bring me life. How? Through your word. I've taught on this before, but Scripture frequently speaks of an intimate type of knowledge. Genesis 4.1 says, Adam knew his wife Eve. That type of knowledge involves a deep intimacy. Adam's knowledge of Eve is something special. It's not common knowledge. The Hebrew verb that's used in Genesis 4.1 is yada. And it's interesting that the same Hebrew word, yada, is found in Psalm 119 in three places referring to David's knowledge of God. Psalm 119.75 says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Psalm 119.125, I'm your servant. Give me understanding. Give me this knowledge that I may know your testimonies. And in Psalm 119.152, long have I known from your testimonies, that you have founded them forever. Each of these uses points to a special intimate knowledge of God. Regardless of David's current state, he can fully trust in the promises of God because he knows him on an intimate level. What David knows is that true revival comes from an intimate relationship with God that's grounded primarily in his word. He's intentional with his time in scripture. It's the foundation of this intimate relationship. That's the main theme of 119. If you've taken the time to read through the whole chapter, it's all centered on the value of God's Word. His ways, His testimonies, His statutes, His rules, His commandments, His precepts, and His laws. And David teaches in Psalm 1 that blessed is the man who meditates on the Word of God day and night. Why? Because through it, he develops this intimate knowledge of God. That's where the blessing comes. In the New Testament, we can confirm everything. In the New Testament, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 teaches us that God's very word breathed out is what has the potential to teach us and change us. That's what brings revival. God alone has the power to change a man's soul, his innermost being, and it only comes through an intimate relationship with him, an intimate knowledge of, of him. So again, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. It should come as no surprise that various English translations of, of chapter 119 use the term promise and word interchangeably. Because in reality, it's the same thing. The word is the promise. It's the very spoken and written word of God that offers the promise. And it's the word made flesh that is the fulfillment of that promise. So if we desire to see true Christian revival in this very place, what are the implications of David's cry in verse 25 for us? The first thing is we, we must pray for our nation and the nations of the world fervently. But we have to understand that if we want to see revival on a large scale, it has to begin on a small scale. 
God has placed us in this community for a purpose. For such a time as this. How can we expect to see revival in our own community if we don't experience revival at Plant Grow Harvest? And how can we expect to see a revival at Plant Grow Harvest if we don't experience revival individually? Dale made a good comment. I, take, I can't take uh, credit for this, but he said, as we were discussing these things, how many people want to experience revival personally versus how many people want to just be swept up in revival? I just want to be part of the casualty storm that comes through because it kicked off over there. If we're all caught up in that second group, then the truth is it's never going to happen because we're all sitting around waiting for it. Psalm 84.11 says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. We want to see revival? Walk uprightly. We've got to practice humility. You've got to be humble in spirit. Do we recognize our disposition just as David did? Do we despair over our sin or do we just rationalize it? I'm better than that guy. At least I'm not that guy. Do we recognize our heavenly hope in Christ? Do we recognize that the promises of God are, are for me just as they were for David? And do we place our hope in them or do we place our hope in ourselves? Do we long to know Yada? Do we know? Do we long to know God? Do we long for His Word and relationship with Him? The real question is, does it define our lives? Does our longing to know God define our lives? These are the three keys to revival that David's cry reveals. That's what will bring revival to this place and to this community. And if we follow those things, what's the outcome? In Psalm 23, David talks about his relationship with God, this intimate knowledge and relationship that he has with God, the Good Shepherd. And in verse 5, he says, You anoint my head with oil, and as a result, my cup overflows. David's talking about blessing. His intimate relationship with God brings personal revival, favor and blessing on his life that results in an overflow of God's Spirit that's pervasive. That's the outcome. True Christian revival in a community necessarily results in the salvation of the lost, those that don't know God. That's what happens when our cup overflows. Remember, revival is for those in the kingdom of God, but it's that same revival that results in the growth of God's kingdom, in the new life of the dead man. You can't bring revival to a man who's always been dead. He's got to be given life first. And that's only going to happen as God moves as our cup overflows. God can use this body and he desires to use this body. But he's only going to use those he knows. Be humble. Know and trust his promises and long for his word. And here's, here's your cliffhanger. That requires zeal. 
You've got to chase after it. It's not going to fall in your lap. A great pursuit of God. That's what has to happen. That's where David and Pastor Dell are going to take us next week. How do I get that zeal? I'm going to write a sermon for him right here. How do, how do I get that zeal? <laughs> but if I'm not chasing after God, that relationship's never going to happen. That intimate knowledge is never going to happen. And as a result, revival and a changed community is not going to happen. We hold the key. What are we chasing after? May we be a people that chase and pursue God so that His name would be glorified and our community would be changed. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for clarity and distinction of how revival can be brought to this place. Lord, I pray that revival would fall on us, that we would recognize who we are, and that we would recognize that You alone can bring us out of that state. That You can, can relight the flame and remove our stagnation. Lord, our community, our state, our nation is so in desperate need of revival and a knowledge of You. That's only going to happen as our cup overflows. Lord, I pray that you would fill our cup up, that you would give us desire for your word, a desire for a relationship with you, so that your name would be glorified and this community be blessed. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Stay and eat. we got plenty of food.